Welcome to the Popcorn Talk Network. For the online broadcast network that features movie discussion, news, and interviews, press one. Popcorn Talk. We talk movies. From the Popcorn Talk Network, the online broadcast network for movie talk, Alicia Malone with Scott Movie Mance and the Schmoes Know, this is Profile. In-depth spotlights on the greatest filmmakers and artists in motion picture history. Hello, Hello profilers. profilers. Welcome shimmy, to shimmy. episode 17. You know what I mean <laughs> of profiles. Today we are talking about, we are spotlighting, we are celebrating the career of a filmmaker who, gotta tell you, when we say that this is our favorite filmmaker, mm-hmm. this really is the one for me, Ridley Scott. He's up there with Spielberg. Sir Ridley Scott. Sir Ridley Scott. Much. Yes. He has been knighted. He is quite amazing. He's not one of my all-time favorites, but he's definitely up there because he has done pretty much every genre you can name, hasn't he? He's done horror films, sci-fi, war movies, road movies. He's 77 years old. He's still going. He has a new movie out, Exodus of Gods and Kings. And, you know, he has such a great way of creating worlds. Oh, for sure. These really immersive, believable worlds. And I love light and shadow. Some people call him the Rembrandt of light. I could go on and on, but you tell me, why do you love Sir Ridley Scott? Well, it's exactly what you said. He's a creator of these worlds, but he can also shift gears in a heartbeat and do a character-driven film. Yeah, like Like uh, Thelma Louise, like Matchstick Men. And he is a filmmaker who really does challenge his audiences, mm-hmm. especially with seminal classics like Alien and Blade runner and and even gladiator to an extent and black hawk down a lot of movies we're going to talk about today because they're so they're dark they're so concentrated in terms of their visual style and they are they're dense i feel like he challenges himself as well like he keeps challenging himself he keeps working at it and trying different things and that's so rare for a filmmaker especially i mean his the stage of his game i mean he's he's producing television he's producing movies of (laughs) course he's directing movies he's already directing his next film the martian with matt damon i can't wait for that one i can't wait for that while he's been promoting exodus gods and kings and one word about Ridley Scott, our show today, we do have a very, very, very special guest joining us on the show today. We do. It's really, really special. exciting. I know. I can't believe it. Anytime we get a guest of this nature for our show, it just feels so special. Well, this is an amazing filmmaker mm-hmm. who really, really has had an amazing wonderful life. I think that means it's time to see It's, it's a, a Wonderful, wonderful life. life. Roll it. Ridley Scott was born on November 30, 1937 in South Shields, Tyne and Ware in the northeast of England, and is the older brother of the late Tony Scott, also an accomplished filmmaker. After graduating from the Royal College of Art in 1963, Scott became a set designer for the BBC, where he soon began directing episodic television. In the years that followed, he and his brother formed Ridley Scott Associates, an advertising film and production company that produced many top television commercials throughout the 1970s. Ridley made his feature directorial debut with 1977's The Duelist, which was nominated for the top prize at that year's Cannes Film Festival. But with the two landmark films that followed, 1979's Alien and 1982's Blade Runner, as well as the famous Apple Macintosh 1984 television commercial, Scott secured his reputation as a trailblazing, bold, and visionary filmmaker, a reputation that holds firm to this day. Sir Ridley Scott was knighted in 2003 for his substantial contributions to the British film industry, and he has been nominated for three Academy Awards. Wow. Wow. Again, never won. Never won. What's a guy (laughs) got to do to win an Oscar around here? Well, what is it about Tony Scott when you first saw your very first movie? What did I say, Tony? Tony, yeah. Ridley. (laughs) Ridley Scott. Who was your your first blood for Ridley Scott? My first blood for Ridley was Thelma and Louise. Shocker. (laughs) Shocker, I know. I know it came out in 1991. I can't remember exactly the year I saw it. I was, uh, it must have been in the 80s, I mean the 90s at some point on VHS. Uh, I don't remember the specifics, but I do remember really loving the story and 
just really falling for these two women and enjoying this journey that they go on. We'll be talking a lot more about that film, but it definitely had an impact on me as a young girl. And it's so rare that you see these types of women explored in film. So I really loved it. And from there, I remember seeing Alien and Blade Runner, and it took me a while to realize this was all the same guy. Oh, yeah. They feel so different. They are so different. And amazing that when Thumb and Louise came out in 1991, it was such a radical departure for Ridley Scott after he'd done those other films. We'll talk more about that. But What was your first well, blood? My first blood, when I saw it in theaters, when I was 10 years old, was <laughs> Alien. In theaters? In the theaters. That's terrifying. That is terrifying. Did your parents take you? No, unlike <laughs> unlike with Apocalypse Now and The Shining. And the Shining, they did not take me. <laughs> okay. I went with a bunch of friends. Wow. And did yeah, they this, let you in the cinema? They, they yeah, Philadelphia sort of anything oh, okay. goes. Who cares, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah, just pay your money. You're in. Yeah. <laughs> but with Alien, I mean, we were just expecting another Star Wars. I mean, it only been two years since that movie opened. And what a completely different kind of film. And mm-hmm. this Star Wars was an action film in space. It was a fantasy. It was a it was a fairy tale. It really, was a space opera. It was a space opera. This was a horror film terrifying. set in space, and it was terrifying. Very intense. And I'll just listen. I'll never forget the chest busting scene. Oh. No one knew that was coming. To this day, you watch that. That movie you watch that scene it is still shocking and terrifying yes. and very very disturbing well, i can't wait to talk more about that soon oh, yeah, we but will. now let's get into our fast five number five is black hawk down amazing film released on december 28 2001 this was supposed to come out on March 1st, 2002. Mm. They moved it up earlier for two reasons. One was to qualify for award consideration, yep. which it did. Uh, the other was because you know, this was just a few months after 9-11. And with the political and patriotic fervor fueling the nation after that, here's this film with this with its leave no man behind vibe. Yeah. It was very, very patriotic. And it really tied into what Americans were feeling at that time. And it was nominated for four Academy Awards. Awards. It won two for Best Sound and Best Editing, and uh, Ridley Scott was nominated for Best Director. I can see why, because although a lot of people criticize this movie because it has some factual errors and it is very patriotic, yeah. it's a good war film because it is gritty. It puts you right in the middle of all the action. Those action scenes are thrilling and oh. tense, and it's visually gorgeous as well. There's some really great-looking scenes in there, plus the cast. I mean, you look at this now and you realize how many people were in this movie like who like eric banner right so he this was his first u.s film he'd done chopper in australia before that he was a stand-up comedian he never would have paid him for a stand-up comedian at all a sketch comedic artist and then suddenly you saw him in chopper you're like this guy can act and from there he went to black hawk down which started his career here then you have ewan mcgregor josh hartnett orlando bloom tom sizemore sam shepherd hugh dancy johan griffith William Fichter and Tom Hardy. Tom Hardy, his first movie. Yeah. But this, listen, this film, when I saw it, I remember I saw three movies in one day when that weekend that it came out. I saw... <laughs> you are uh, a film geek. I, I total. And <laughs> one of the movies was, uh, was it was uh, Beautiful Mind. Yeah. Uh, the other was Johnny, uh, what was it, Johnny? Uh, the Mnemonic. Mnemonic. Yeah. And the other one was Black, Black Hawk, Hawk Down. Down. And Black Hawk Down was the last movie that I saw. And this is a gripping visceral film mm. really puts you in the action Does. it is a pulse pounding edge of your seat thriller 123 US soldiers trapped behind enemy lines outnumbered overwhelmed yeah. overpowered running out of ammunition and it doesn't shy away from showing what a disaster this mission was right it is very authentic and it feels very real and also amazingly because of the the level of detail and and how visceral the film is can you believe that it's actually Ridley Scott's third movie in two years after Gladiator and Hannibal and then Black Hawk Down? That's right. What what a role he was on. Because after Gladiator, Gladiator was so successful, he would yeah. have had his pick of any script he wanted. And he chose Hannibal, regardless of what you think of that film. At least it's something completely different. It is different. And then again, really different, he goes for Black Hawk Down. And I like the Black Hawk Down, although people say it is very pro-war. I think uh, Jerry, Jerry Bruckheimer said to a general in the army that they were going to make a film that they would be proud of. 
it still has a good dose of social commentary in there. Absolutely. No question about it. This was made with the full cooperation of the U.S. military. It cost $92 million to make. It made $172.9 million worldwide. And would you believe, I'm sure you would, because I certainly believed it, that this is the favorite movie of George W. Bush. <laughs> I do believe that. I believe actually. that, yes. <laughs> well, let's see what Schmoville has to say about Black Hawk Down. Tom Smith. Yay, Tom. Yay, Tom. We love Tom. We love Tom. <laughs> he says, Black Hawk Down is an amazing movie for many reasons, especially because of the efficient character development in the film. With a large ensemble cast, moments are effortlessly threaded through that make the characters relatable. An argument about Scrabble word usage, sketching <laughs> children's books, and complaining about typing skills are just some of the moments that achieve this. They are like quick sketches but give you enough to draw you in and really care about the characters he makes a really great point because those scenes where they're just talking are some of my favorites yeah and that's where you really learn about character because it didn't it felt organic yeah it didn't feel like oh we're gonna have some exposition about uh, and they all have different opinions as well of the war like yeah. josh hartnett is this idealist. idealistic yep. yeah i like the and differences between them eric bannon's like yeah just just whatever he's just going fine by the seat of his pants exactly uh, and mark toward another awesome profiler says Yay. Never before had any filmmaker attempted such a large-scale or urban-based war movie until Black Hawk Down. Ridley Scott filmed the rarely seen streets of Mogadishu, and with the unforgiving ferocity of urban combat, mm. never have I seen a war movie play so many characters in a large urban area as they try to maneuver gunfire from every single street corner and rooftop they encounter. It really is crazy. Yeah. I must give Scott's camera work applause for following the soldiers in and out of so many tight settings while still maintaining the claustrophobia and fear of house-to-house urban combat. It's true, and and that's what, when you watch it now, it still feels very relevant to what is happening. Very much so. Right now, because before that, you know, the you got the World War II movies and uh, Vietnam movies, which take place in very big open spaces sure. often, but this it does feel that claustrophobic. This cost this condensed, dense yeah. city. Yeah, totally. But, you know, there are so many great Ridley Scott movies, mm-hmm. and there's so many great Ridley Scott scenes. So <laughs> yeah. when, when now that we are, are up to our right stuff, our favorite scene, I have a feeling I know yours. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I think you're going to guess it right. Not only is it from Thelma and Louise, but it is the last shot of that movie. It is. That Shocker, is yes. such an incredible scene. It's It's so bizarre, in a way, because you never see the car landing. Yeah. In in the cut that that made the cinemas, you see it ending when they're flying. I love the idea that they wanted to keep going. They didn't want to get caught and you know, women like them maybe people wouldn't believe them plus then they started to commit other crimes so they got themselves in more and more hot water. I love that they hold each other's hands and they look at each other in the eye. It's friendship to the very end. And I thought the screenwriter Callie Curry had something really interesting to say about that yep. scene. She said, "To me the ending was symbolic, not literal. We did everything possible to make sure you didn't see a literal death. You were left with the image of them flying. Women who are completely free from all the shackles that restrain them have no place in this world. After all they went through, I didn't want anyone to be able to touch them. Well, you know, it, we're going to talk a lot about Thelma Louise, but since we're talking about the ending now, it wasn't just that it ended, froze on the car midair, mm. and faded to black. Yeah. It and faded then, to them in the car just having fun. Yeah, the flashback scenes of everything that led up to that. It, it made it more emotional. And more hopeful. Too. Seeing them as they were mm. as they you know their friendship like it could have just cut the black directed by Ridley Scott and would have been shocking <laughs> like, enough oh my gosh but seeing them just like you know in the car just having a good time the other thing about that about that ending because it is really one of the best endings in movie history yeah. it really is even today and when rare I was, to end like that you think test audience would say how about they just get away well they wanted there were there were some options and one of the scenes that was filmed, the ending actually did go on longer, and it did end with the way that you you didn't want it to end, mm. where it showed the car and all mangled. And That's Harvey right. Keitel's character, the only real decent guy in the movie, <laughs> yeah. uh, he goes to the edge of the cliff, looks down, sees the car, and then sees fly, flapping away in the wind the Polaroid the picture, Polaroid selfie. the selfie that they took together. <laughs> and the other thing that Callie Corey talked about was uh, an option that was discussed but not filmed was as Thelma and Louise are driving to the cliff Mm. Louise pushes Thelma out of the car at the last minute to save her saves her 
Which is nice, but no. I, I like the fact that they're in it together. Yeah. Right to the end. Now, I think I can guess your right stuff. Okay, <laughs> It's got to be from Blade Runner. Okay, yes. That's your favourite film. Uh-huh. Um, I'm guessing Tears in the Rain. Do we know each other or what? <laughs> I know. Do we know each other or what? Yeah, we spend a lot of time with each other. <laughs> uh, you know, but I'm telling you, that movie, I, I, and I, listen, I was going with the ending of Thelma Louise, and I knew you were going to have that covered. Yeah, so like I thought it. about the chest-busting scene mm-hmm. from Alien. I thought about the, the big reveal in Gladiator when I he takes off his mask. I thought a lot about the Brad Pitt scene. Oh, I bet you did. Thelma <laughs> <laughs> Louise. Watching that, I was like, oh my Whoa. God, that is hot. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but yes, the tears in the rain, because it was that moment of the film, that moment in Blade Runner, when Roy Batty, the replicant, whose lifespan as a as an android was four years, felt like he finally realized what it meant to be human yeah. and did a human act with his last moment of life, reflected on it, embraced the experiences he had during those four years. Mm. And Deckard, Harrison Ford, is sitting there. Uh, I mean, I know he says this in the cheesy voiceover, but he's just like, why did he save my life mm-hmm. and it's just it's a haunting ending and it the really stays with you beautiful cinematography once again and beautiful music oh the music is great I love score that music. is great and he wrote Rucker Howard wrote that last monologue that's right uh, I, I've seen things you people wouldn't believe <laughs> attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion da 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 like tears in rain so, so beautiful absolutely beautiful well so many details in ridley scott movies so our last detail which is our trivia segment trivia segments. let's uh see what we can learn about ridley scott and his movies so Hit me up. did you know yes I'm, i know no. you did but i will <laughs> tell you anyway that actor oliver reed who played proximo in gladiator he passed away before he could complete his scenes yeah. so they used cgi to create a digital version of him and you know I think I, I rewatched it just the other night, and I think even if you if you don't know what to look for and you're not looking for it specifically, you can't tell. It yeah. still holds up today. It definitely does. I mean, they spent about three point two million dollars to complete that scene. Yeah. And again, you're right. I mean, if you're not looking for it, and of course we were looking for it, yeah. but if you're not, it's it's totally natural it and works. organic, and it totally works. Uh, did you know my my uh, the last detail is an all casting edition? Yeah. That some of the other actors Actors considered for the part of Deckard in Blade Runner yeah. were Al Pacino huh. and Dustin Hoffman. Dustin Hoffman. I liked Harrison Ford. Yeah. I mean, it's a good, it, not like the quintessential hero like he was as Han Solo and Indiana Jones, but still heroic enough where, I, I don't know, I couldn't imagine Dustin Hoffman in that he's, role. He's got the hard edge about him, Harrison yeah. Ford, which really works for that role. Uh, I just realized that I've written down the same one as you have, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know Tell me. that when the alien casting director's other suggestions for actress for Ripley was... Uh, Meryl, Meryl Streep. Streep. Oh my God! So they wanted Meryl Streep. They wanted Meryl Streep because she was a bigger star. She was fresh from 1978's Deer Hunter, but her husband John Cazale, who was in The Godfather, had yep. just passed away from lung cancer. So they didn't want to push that with her. So they went with the more unknown Sigourney Weaver. Well. Great minds, my friend. <laughs> Great minds. More casting news. <laughs> Did you know that Ripley was... Oh, wait. You just oh, read that. Sorry, okay. Sorry. Going back to Gladiator, the actor who was first offered the role and turned it down, mm. Mel Gibson. I can actually imagine him as... Except he does. he's not as big and tough as Russell Crowe, but... After Mad Max, he does have that quality about him. But also, I mean, and after Braveheart. Braveheart. It's too similar. It's too similar. Five years after Braveheart, he would have done Gladiator. It's true, it's true. And also, he also felt like at 43 years old, he was too old for the role. Yeah. Uh, which makes me wonder, <laughs> what was Russell Crowe when he did it? I know. Well, <laughs> Obviously, a little younger. <laughs> let's find out more about that movie, shall we? With our right Fast now. Five number four. Are you not entertained? Yes. Are you not entertained? Oh, that's so great, Gladiator. What a great <laughs> scene that is. Yeah. Uh, what a great movie, really. Uh, voiced on, released on May 5th, 2000. And it revived the long dormant Sword and Sandals epic, mm-hmm. uh, a genre that I never really cared for and still don't. I don't. I do not like Sword and Sandal epics at all. And I don't like what Gladiator spurned because <laughs> after the success of this movie came, you know, Troy and 300 and yeah. Clash of the Titans. But watching this again the other night, it is entertaining. I was Sorry. entertained. It- and I think it's 
for you know for several different factors so this is what i'm thinking okay so number one is of course the plot yep it's almost a shakespearean tragedy in yes. there father and son and lots of revenge and it also follows the very standard joseph campbell's hero's journey so it's very simple but it works and and that story has been around for a long time for a reason number two is the world it is a believable immersive world you feel like you're there it doesn't feel fake at all it felt very it, no, Rome had never been filmed like that before. Yeah. And it wasn't like a cheesy, typical, cliche-ridden Rome with, like, you know, men being fed grapes by half-naked women. Yeah, I mean, it didn't have those cliches. And then number three, of course, the action. Yes. You go straight into the action with that big battle scene. and then hell. The action sequences are really clever and very inventive. The the tiger and the, the chariots and all these different things, they really keep you on the edge of your seat. But all of those things, I completely agree. What it really comes down to is just a movie about character. And the actors. The actors. I mean, what an amazing hero's journey yeah. for Maximus. Yeah. And the way he was a general and he was like going to get the keys to the empire. And he has to rise again as a gladiator. This is a a, 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 a gripping, exciting, it's a rousing film. Yes. You know, that moment, the big reveal when he takes off his mask in front of Joaquin Phoenix. You know, my name is Maximus, uh, father to a murdered son. Husband to a murdered wife, and I will have my vengeance. Maximus! 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 And this is the film that made Russell Crowe a star. Sure did. And he has that perfect quality of being this this brute, this this person you believe as being someone who can win these gladiator fights, but also you empathize with him. And Joaquin Phoenix, so creepy. Creepy, perverse, in oh love with gosh. his sister. But again, you believe that trajectory of him. You believe totally. that he would do those despicable things. And he was nominated for it, too. Yeah. But I, I, the other thing about this movie when I was watching it recently something that it, it hit me that it didn't hit me when I saw it 14 years ago was how this is almost like a metaphor for fame and mm. celebrity the way the that Rome gets behind Maximus when they find out that he's he's this this gladiator mm-hmm. and and the line that Russ uh, uh, Oliver Reed says to him before he goes into the ring the first time and he knows his story and he says when the crowd and you will win your freedom. Mm. Now, this movie was nominated for 12 Academy Awards, including Best Director for Ridley Scott. But it, he didn't win. He, he, who did he lose to? Uh, traffic, wasn't it? Traffic, Soderberg, yeah. yeah. Steven Soderbergh, very good. Uh, <laughs> won five Oscars, including Best Picture and Best Actor for Russell Crowe. And uh, ironically, Russell Crowe was not happy with the screenplay. He rewrote a lot of his own dialogue. Uh, maybe that's why the screenplay came out so well. But, I mean, yeah. listen, it was co-written uh, by uh, three different screenwriters, and uh, including John Logan. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, I think it's it just holds up so, so well. It does. I heard that the the flash-forwards to the afterlife, all those scenes with the hand and yeah. the corn and everything, that was all the wheat or whatever it is, that was uh, filmed later on and added later on, but it definitely adds to it. And also, when I was watching this, I felt it's quite rare to have a action-adventure movie like this for adults. Because these days, it would get watered down to being very PG-13. That's Ridley Scott. He Ridley makes, Scott. He makes action movies for grown-ups. Mm. But he also makes character-driven films for grown-ups as well. <laughs> and Jordan Thyssen, our profiler, uh, says, I was nine years old when Gladiator came out and has been one of my favorite movies of all time ever since. Old. Oh, boy. <laughs> Ridley Scott transports the viewer to ancient Rome in a way that had not been done before and has not been done as well as well since. That's yep. what you just said. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is the perfect blend of action, drama, and revenge. The score by Hans Zimmer has especially stayed with me. Well, Seb Lacey, who's another profiler that I always enjoy talking to on Twitter, says, I love Gladiator as a movie that harkens back to the sword and sandal epic movies, which for a while looked like it was making a comeback. Ridley Scott really captured ancient Rome well with the amazing special effects, the intense fight scenes, and the outstanding performances from all the actors amazing 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 well in our bit that we call the player yes we're doing something really special with this one we are going to look at we're doing going to do a quick top five of the films of ridley's younger brother tony scott the late tony scott the late tony scott really sad that he's no longer around because i think that they differ in the way that tony 
was really a great action films and really fun, just escapist action totally. movies. You go into the cinema and you have a really good time. Right. And and if you were going to use one word to describe each filmmaker, Ridley's, Ridley's uh, adjective would be stylish mm-hmm. and Tony's would be slick. Yeah, I because, agree. Because, you know, Tony Scott's movies, like you said, they're, they're entertaining. They're popcorn films. Mm-hmm. They're very high concept. Whereas Ridley Scott's movies are more, they both have their share, they have their share of action, yeah. each director, but Ridley's, like we just said, is, it's more for sophisticated and more dense. cerebral, more dense. Mm-hmm. But so, so number five on our Fast Five for Tony Scott. Unstoppable. Unstoppable. Fun movie. It was really fun. I mean, it's just a good time. It's and a good time. I have to say, I was on the edge of my seat through most of that movie going, how is the train going to stop? Well, because like the train itself, the movie picks up speed and gets better as it goes along. Yeah. And Denzel Washington, Chris Pine, terrific together. Number four is a movie that I know you loved a lot. True Romance. True Romance, 1993, and why? What an interesting mashup of Quentin Tarantino's script with Tony Scott's direction. And I think it makes it really unique because it would have been a completely different film if Quentin had directed it himself. Oh, totally. It feels like a Tony Scott movie. It does feel like a Tony Scott movie, but it has that great dialogue of Quentin Tarantino. And it also has Elvis. Yes. Played by Val Kilmer. And it's a hyper-violent film, but it's a lot of fun. Yeah, so cool. And Patricia Arquette and Christian Slater are great together. Mm -hmm. Number three, Enemy of the State. Yeah, which is kind of a sequel-ish to The Conversation. And you got Gene Hackman, Hackman, you know. Will Smith. Will Smith, great together. Much more action-heavy. And very tense. Very tense. It's It's very solid. It's a very, very solid movie. Number two, Crimson Tide. A film I haven't seen in a long time. It's great. It holds up fantastic. Whenever it's on... On, like cable if I'm flipping through no matter where it is I'll, I'll keep it on <laughs> yeah. because what I loved about the movie is that you had the captain of the sub played by Gene Hackman and the first officer played by Denzel Washington mm-hmm. they're great together and it, it doesn't really pick sides like neither person is 100% wrong or 100% right. They both have their share of, of reasons. You don't really know. Your loyalties are divided. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And that keeps you entertained and, and glued to the seat. And we had to go number one, Top Gun. Top Gun. Because it's on. so iconic. It is iconic. I feel the need for speed. Tom Cruise. Tom take Cruise. my breath away. Danger star. Zone. Made him a star. The volleyball scene. <laughs> Very homoerotic. The volleyball scene. Yes. <laughs> totally. Isn't it? Yes. It is. It is. But it still contains some great action scenes. So... Tony Scott very much missed. I'm glad that we could talk about him here. And back to Ridley Scott, something yes. really fun that always happens on our profiles Facebook page, which is Profiles with Melody Manson Lishmo's No Network. Give it a like, go there right now. And join in on these brackets because everyone was debating what the best Ridley Scott film was. Right. So firstly, a big thanks to Max Ants Vincent Vincent. <laughs> Max Ants Vincent and Rachel Cushing who submitted these brackets. So basically it came down to the final Four, which was Alien versus Black Hawk Down. Okay. Gladiator versus Thelma and Louise. Oh. And then it got down to Alien versus Gladiator. Do you want to guess who won? It was by one vote. By one vote, I'm going to guess Gladiator. Yeah, Gladiator wow. by one vote. And Steve Zissou, who was counting up the results, said that he counted six times. No because way. He wasn't sure if who was going to win in the end. And Wait. everyone weighed in, which is great. So. My movie wasn't even close. No. Oh, leash! No way. Mine, mine no. got kicked down in the final four too. Well, well, this just goes to show you. This just goes to show you how important it is for everyone to go to our Facebook page, yeah. Profiles with Malona Mance on the Schmozno Network. Join in. Join in on the fun. Like our page. These brackets are so much fun. So fun. Everybody gets in on the action. And at one point, it looked like Prometheus was going to beat Thelma and Louise. We could not have that happen. No, we cannot have that happen. <laughs> no way! No way! But the other thing is, while you're you're checking out our page, Profiles with Malona Mance on the Schmozno Network, go to Facebook, like it, join in on the fun. Also, very, very important. We need this to survive. Go to iTunes. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Rate and review us on iTunes. We need these ratings and reviews to survive. We get so many suggestions for people that you want want us to profile in the future. Actors, directors, actresses, composers. What a great idea. That's a great idea. And we could even branch off and profile Pixar, profile (laughs) Marvel. Well, I think another show's already doing that. We won't say who because this is going 
going to be a surprise for a later episode, but we just spoke to a big name star oh, about yes, profiles, did. and he was like, "But won't you run out of filmmakers?" We're like, "No, no, because we have actors. We have." And he was like, "Great answer, great answer. This can go on forever, but only with your help. Subscribe to our podcast profiles and rate and review us, and also, yeah, if you want to see us in action, then you should go to YouTube.com/slash Popcorn Talk Network and give that a subscribe because you'll see a new profiles episode every Wednesday. Every Wednesday, and right now we have what do we have? We have our big picture. Oh yes. Okay, our big picture where we choose. <laughs> I have the rundown right here. I'm surprised. Um, we choose our top three Ridley top three. Scott posters. Let's check it out. Great Scott, great posters. And the one sheet for 1979's Alien, designed by Bill Gold, was pretty damn terrifying. This was more than just another sci-fi film. This was a horror film, and the proof was in its classic tagline, In space, no one can hear you scream. And you gotta love the one sheet for 1991's Thelma and Louise. Not just because it's a great movie, but because it features Susan Sarandon and Gina Davis taking the first selfie. Sure, it was with a Polaroid camera, but still, it counts. Put it in the record books. And then there's this beautiful one-sheet for 1982's Blade Runner, designed by John Alvin, which captures the dystopian vision of the future portrayed in this landmark sci-fi classic. And just like the film itself, this poster has gotten better with age. So oh, true. Yeah. yeah, movie has really just gotten better. And it's I still love ahead of its time. Tom Smith, who put us in that poster. That is my favorite. And I was looking at that and I was like, maybe I should dye my hair black. That looks pretty cool. That's pretty cool. <laughs> You'll look very good as a film noir star of the future. Yeah, well, I think I do. Brings us to our quiz show where we test each other's knowledge oh, of Ridley Scott movies. Okay. Okay, so I'm going to hit you up first. All right. I have a feeling you're going to get this. I, yeah. I didn't want it at the end. Is it Thelma and Louise? Okay. It's not Thelma Louise. <laughs> I figured that would be too easy. Okay. You know, I don't want to just give it away. Sure. But in Black Hawk Down, yes. what was the code word used to launch the mission? Was it Arlene? Was it Marlene? Was it Irene? Or was it Eileen? Marlene? It was Irene. I can't remember. <laughs> I just rewatched it. I just rewatched it. And I, when he said that, I'm like, oh, that's a good trivia <laughs> that is question. That's a good trivia question. Well, one for you, which is probably just, you're just going to have to guess this one. But I thought it was an interesting fact. Okay. How many projects does Ridley Scott have in development according to IMDb right now? Right in now? In development. Okay. A, 26 projects. B, 35 projects. Or C, 54 projects. Uh, well, does that include like like producing producing and, uh, TV and everything? Is it fifty four? Yeah, get the hell out of here! I mean, sometimes IMDb is not correct, but apparently he has fifty four different projects currently in development. Of course, including The Martian, which I'm, I cannot. It gets, wait. I'm exhausted just thinking about that. How schedule. does he keep up with that? How does he keep up with it? That is why we are profiling him because this is an amazing filmmaker. Amazing, and let's go to our fast five number, number three. three. Let's not get caught. What are you talking about? Let's keep going. Let's oh, keep going. Thelma and Louise released May 24th, 1991. <laughs> Cost $16.5 million to make. Domestic box office was $45 million. Alicia, I know this is a very, very special move for you. So my mm-hmm. question is, you said you saw it when you were young. Yes. You liked it. Mm-hmm. They made an impact on you. But tell me about your first blood when it made an, a bigger impact on you. Oh, a few years ago, I rewatched it and I just realized they don't make these films anymore. And actually, it was pretty rare at the time, too. You know, a movie about two women and it is just about their friendship. The men don't really matter. And yeah, the men are kind of violent, but you do have the nice ones like Harvey Cartel. So I don't think it's completely man hating. Michael Madsen. Michael Madsen. He's cute. He tried. He He tried. tried. Brad Pitt, you know, does some bad things, but he's really sweet at the same time. (laughs) So I don't agree that it is man hating at all, but it is very empowering for women. Absolutely. Gina Davis and Susan Sarandon, at the time they were 35 and 45, Hollywood would say that they are past their prime and they were gorgeous. And being pretty was the least interesting thing about them. It was all about their journey and how they started to versus how they finished. It was written by a woman. She was one of the handful of women to ever win an Oscar for right. Best Screenplay. Mm-hmm. Very, very worthwhile. And these days... 
I mean, it's a small percentage of women that are protagonists in movies. And if they are, then they're usually there for a love interest or there's some kind of guys involved. If movies that are about female friendships and tell truths about women are very few and far between. And that's why I think it's, it's so important. And it's kind of a shame because usually in Hollywood, if a film does really well, and this was a commercial success, as well as being a big Oscar winner and got a lot of nominations, Usually Hollywood would try to recreate that again and again with different different people, but the same kind of flavor. They didn't do they that. Haven't, they haven't been able to. They haven't been able to. Because this is a movie, like you said, Cali Corey, screenplay, won the Oscar. It was nominated for five other Academy Awards, including Best Director for Ridley Scott, mm-hmm. and including both actresses, Susan Sarandon and Gina Davis, were both nominated for, for lead actress, which is great. Listen, this was a controversial movie at the time. I'll never forget when it landed on the cover of Time Magazine and with the tagline that said, Why Thelma and Louise Strikes a Nerve, because mm-hmm. people thought... People thought it was male bashing. People thought it was a feminist movie. Yeah. And and listen, I I definitely noticed that the men don't look that great in the film. Mm. But uh, that you happens know, a lot with women in movies. Exactly. Look at look at Martin Scorsese's movies. Yeah. A lot of times his his women aren't portrayed in the best light. And I remember reading stuff about people saying, "Well, the women are killing all the men. That's unfair." It's like men get killed in movies all the time. It's yeah. only because a woman's killing a man that people have problems with it. And I read this great article came out in 2011, which was the 20th anniversary of Thelma and Louise. Yeah. And it was called The Last Great Film About Women. It and is. And that is still true. It's still true. But and just watching it again, because I hadn't seen it for a really, really long time, it is just a great movie, period. It is. It really is. And, yep. and I remember when we were doing our Fast Five list, when we were coming up with our Fast Five list, originally we had put Gladiator at number three mm. and Thumb and Louise at number four. But when we watched it again, just the cultural impact of this movie. Iconic. It is absolutely iconic. That ending was daring. Exactly. And, and the stylistically, this movie is a Western it is a Western. And, and the horse is that 1966 Thunderbird. Yeah, which I love that car. I love the way it looks. It's so beautiful. The cinematography of America makes you want to go on a road trip. It does, maybe not, doesn't it? Maybe not hold up places on your way, but it makes you want to go on a road trip. But it is true what you say. It is just a good movie. I point out all the stuff about women just because I want to show that it was an anomaly and how it hasn't happened again. But if you forget all that, it's entertaining to watch. It's so entertaining. And it is... It, it's Bonnie and Clyde yeah. with women. It's Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid with women. And, uh, you know, again, like you said, the cinematography, the, the beautiful vistas of the desert and just this road trip. I love the scene. It's, it's pretty subtle. It's, you know, of all the great scenes in this movie, it was just something that really struck me. It's, it's sort of a little montage when they're driving through the desert and it's at night. And their faces are being lit up by the lights on the dashboard. Mm. And at first, their faces look very serious. And it starts with Susan Sarandon. Then it goes to Gina Davis. Then it goes back to Susan Sarandon. She's starting to, like, creep a little smile. And then it goes back to Gina Davis. And they're both smiling like, yep, we're... We've taken control of our lives. Yeah, they Who knows actually, how long it's going to last, but... It's funny because by stepping into the life of crime, they feel like they're discovering themselves. Yes, exactly. It's and uh, it's it's that scene at the end of the movie, again, like when I was watching it, when I was watching it again, I was watching it by myself and I... I wanted to talk to somebody about it right away, but you were over in London. No, Thanks in a London. lot for that. Sorry about that. <laughs> but Rachel Cushing, she loves Thelma and Louise. And by the way, Rachel's just started her own film review site. Give it a give it a real reviews with Rachel. Yeah, yeah, excellent, it's awesome. So she says Thelma and Louise has achieved legendary status as the film that broke all the rules by starring two women in something other than a rom com. Perfection is the only way to describe the performances of Susan Sarandon and Gina Davis as they played two fully real flawed, funny, and kick-ass women on the run. Scott doesn't hold back on the action either, throwing as much at his leading ladies as he would any leading man. The story is exciting, moving, and liberating. And what can you say about that last shot? Simply Simply iconic. iconic. Wow. Well, Lynette Charles. Lynette Charles. We love Lynette. She's so sweet and lovely. So supportive. So supportive. Thelma Louise has a classical narrative structure, The Tripped. The attempted rape and shooting, the fight and the chase, the death escape of Thelma and Louise. It shows how events can have a momentum of their own mm-hmm. and get out of control. Yeah. You feel affection and admiration for the two women. And the concluding scene, 
lends a kind of mythic poetic quality to the ending of what was a very satisfying and enjoyable movie. The performances by Susan Sarandon and Gina Davis were both impeccable. And now we want to go to our Outsiders segment, which is when we talk about some underrated movies. Underrated movies. Movies that could have made our list, but, just but they didn't, just didn't. Just missed out. What's one of them for you? One of them for me, one that I haven't told you about, but I actually remembered that I really love is Matchstick Men. Oh, Matchstick Men. Great. Yeah, yeah I like with that. Nick Cage and mm-hmm. Sam Rockwell, and it's kind of three different stories. Nick Cage plays, you know, con man with panic attacks, and <laughs> and it's less about all the con, and it's more about the characters again, like Ridley Scott does. Absolutely. Well, I love American Gangster. Yes, Came me too. Two thousand seven, and this is a movie where you have a cop played by Russell Crowe and the gang leader played by Denzel Washington. Opposites. Re- opposites. They can't really exist without the other, and in that way, it sort of reminded me. It was like Ridley Scott's version of Heat mm-hmm. that they never have any scenes together until the very end of the film mm-hmm. uh, but what else what else you got G.I. Jane G.I. Jane great film Demi Moore another strong super tough another strong woman let's, let's so you have G.I. Jane okay yes. you have Sigourney Weaver as Ripley, Ripley. you have Thumb and Louise he is very progressive very very big supporter of women in film I like that gotta love Ridley Scott I love Black Rain with oh, Michael yeah. Douglas. I've actually never seen that. A very, very good film. Underrated, criminally underseen film. Sort of, tr- It was the closest to uh, being a true action star hero that Michael Douglas ever got after Romancing the Stone. Yep. And it's a very, very good, uh, it, it's a suspense thriller. He's taken on the Japanese uh, mafia. Mm-hmm. And, and another film that I love, I only saw it once, but it did stay with me because uh, it, it was sort of Dead Poet Society on a boat. White Squall. White Squall with Jeff Bridges. With Jeff Bridges. Very, very good film. Character driven. Had a great cast. It's Scott Wolf and uh, I think Ryan Phillippe is in that movie too. Mm-hmm. He's made a lot of very good films. Well, Schmoville suggested some films that they like. So Hannibal. Omar Tabush says, I think Hannibal is a very underrated film because it doesn't necessarily live up to The Silence of the Lambs, which would be tough to do. Yeah, it would be tough. <laughs> but I think it is a great film. Anthony Hopkins is as creepy as ever, especially in the infamous brain scene. Oh, who could forget that? It has a great supporting cast with the likes of Gary Oldman, Julianne Moore, and Ray Liotta, as well, and it's well directed by Ridley Scott. Definitely overlooked in his filmography, in my opinion. Well, Cathal Thomas Coleman agrees with you about Matchstick Man. Yay. says Matchstick Man is super underrated Nicholas Cage and Allison Lohman give amazing performances in a much more stripped down Ridley Scott film Hannibal is enjoyable but unfairly maligned as it lives in the shadow of Silence of the Lambs Black Rain is a great American cop versus Japanese film mm-hmm. Michael Douglas is solid and Andy Garcia gives a charming performance as his pal the karaoke scene is fun and the car park stalking scene is very tense and leads to the film's most memorable and shocking moments way to go Cathal so he likes both Matchstick Man yes. and Black Rain. There you go. Bit, what, a little from column A, a little from column B. Well, now let's go to our Fast Five number two, which is... Alien. Scary as hell. May 25th, 1979. <laughs> Nominated for two Academy Awards and won one for Best Visual Effects. Oh boy, H.R. Geiger's design for the alien oh. was terrifying. And I, I don't know if you agree with this, but there are several theories on the internet. It's really interesting if you look this up. That alien is all about the fear of the female. So apparently the aliens are kind of phallic-like with their heads. Yeah. And the interiors, which Geiger designed to be womb-like. And then you have the chest bursting, which kind of like birth. And Ripley is the woman that people are afraid of. There's a whole mass of theories. You know, we both love this when people yeah. go really oh, yeah. deep into movies. Uh-huh. And with Alien, there's tons of that. So go and look it up and see if you agree or you don't agree. I definitely agree that you see a lot of male-female stuff in there. But see, if people are picking up on these things and they write about it, that's so great. So great. And Geiger said as well, he did try and make it like a womb, like like female, lots of female stuff in there. Well, he also purposely didn't give the alien eyes because he wanted the alien to look more soulless mm. and scary without the eyes, which it definitely does. Movie cost eleven and a half million dollars to make, made seventy nine million dollars domestically, which for nineteen seventy nine was a lot of money. Yeah. And again, I know we talked about it in our big picture. 
But what a tagline. Oh, what a tagline. In space, no, no one, one can, can hear, hear you scream. scream. That was actually written by copywriter Barbara Gibbs. Well, a lot of people say it's like Jaws in space. It's yep. definitely a horror film more than a sci-fi. I was reading this review on the film, which, which said that it's kind of like a haunted house film, but the haunted house is a ship. Nothing really happens for the first 45 minutes or so, and then, bam, it oh, escalates. Bam. And the <laughs> fact that you don't see the alien for much of the movie makes it a lot scarier for me. It, it's it's a it's a concept. It is a style and a technique that has proven to be extremely effective. Hitchcock. Hitchcock. I Carpenter. Mean, absolutely. I mean, you you you're looking. It's the imagination mm-hmm. is the scariest tool. It's the scariest special effect because it's what you don't see that scares you the most. Mm-hmm. And just four years after Jaws. To have Alien do something very similar in space was just a brilliant stroke of uh, of, of brilliance on yeah. the part of Ridley Scott. Yeah. And uh, uh, the the inspiration that he had, the inspiration of Ridley Scott had, was of course Star Wars, mm-hmm. and of course two thousand one in terms of the you can say that the, the pacing definitely, you know, lo- and long, even the look of it, and just the the long moments of silence, and then. <laughs> Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh, really? So there's your slasher movie just thrown in. Well, we spoke a little bit about Ripley, Ellen Ripley, such a great character, and she continues to be on the top lists of best female characters ever. Mm-hmm. Interesting thing about her was that she wasn't written as a woman. She was written as a man, and then they found Sigourney Weaver, and they didn't really change anything apart from adding that underwear scene, which, okay, we won't talk about. <laughs> but that's what makes her so interesting, is that she's a woman, but no one questions her. She's, she's there to do a job. She does a job, and she's not over the top with being this fierce warrior. She's just a great character, fully realized character. Well, let me ask you a question. Okay. Which movie do you like better? Alien or Aliens? Alien. First one. Yeah. I like Alien better because I just feel like it's pared down. I know I'm in the minority with this, but no, I just not like, really? Yeah. I, I like the way it plays as a horror. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's so d- divided down the middle in a good way. I do like Aliens. Though. I mean, Aliens, Aliens is great. Is awesome. I actually have a hard time trying to pick between the two because they are so stylistically different that I love them both equally for different reasons. Yeah. And you know what I love about the uh, Alien is everything we just talked about. Mm-hmm. What I love about Aliens was just how much of a metaphor it was for Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And also, I think, I, I feel like Ripley just became a stronger take charge woman oh, in yeah, that she film she stepped into it like she, she was she more proactive mother, more proactive right but i i like also that the characters in alien are kind of truckers in space they're these blue collar workers yeah aboard the nostramo and then they're just thrown into this crazy situation well there was a scene that they were going to shoot it was supposed to be a sex scene between dallas and ripley and they ultimately left it out. I'm so. glad they did. I'm glad they did. And it was interesting Better that they that, didn't go there, you know? Yeah. I mean, they had their underwear. That's fine. Um, <laughs> I like that scene with the, with the chest hug, where they shot it all in one take with all four the... Four cameras. Four cameras. Yep. Yeah, the chest burster. They, and the, the blood that goes onto Veronica's face, and you can see her reaction. It's they real. weren't expecting that. They they knew, listen, they're actors. They were prepping for the scene. But what Ridley Scott didn't tell them was that they were going to be sprayed with blood. Yeah. So when the chef, when the first like tries to punch through his chest, yeah. uh, you're right. The reaction, especially on Veronica Cartwright's but, face, what? is genuine, genuine surprise. That's awesome. And Thalor Mendoza, our friend from Schmoville, says, Alien is one of my favorite movies of all time. One of the best sci-fi horror movies ever ever the mystery and the incredible suspense of the alien lurking around around the nostromo makes this movie the scariest of them all it really is like jaws yes we agree since you hardly get to see the monster until the end scared the crap out of me when i was a kid <laughs> and remains my favorite horror movie thanks malone and mance you guys rock oh, all right thanks, thanks Thor. well margaret ozen says in a decade where sci-fi films were trying to become the next star wars alien stands out because it did its own thing by being the perfect blend of science fiction and and horror. Its pacing allowed for scenes to take in the scope of both the Nostromo and the planetoid, while also creating its iconic tense and claustrophobic atmosphere that leaves you on the edge and anxious for what is to come. That's true, the tension. You know, it's building to something, but you just don't know why. Yeah, what. you just don't know why. Alien also gave us not only one of the greatest sci-fi heroes of all time, but in my opinion, the best example of a strong female character, Ellen, Ellen Ripley. Ripley. Go, Ellen Ripley. Okay, is it time? The time has come. Oh my gosh. Set this up. Okay. Set this up. So, uh, earlier, 
Yes. We were very, very lucky, very honoured to be joined by a special guest who called in all the way from Europe just to talk to Profiles. Let's not reveal who it is. Let's just play it. Let's just play it. Roll it. Ladies and gentlemen, we are so honored to have with us on Profiles, Sir Ridley Scott. This show is all about you and your film <laughs> Exit as Gods and Kings, your amazing career. You are on the line, Profiles with Alicia and Scott. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for that uh, rather splendid introduction. <laughs> We're so excited to talk to you and to talk to you about your new movie, Exodus, Gods and Kings. So can you tell us how you came to direct this one and was it important to you to ground the biblical events in reality? Yeah, that's. A, I'll answer that first because I wouldn't have attempted this to do this in any other form other than, I mean, if you come away from that, it becomes a fantasy and you can't do that with anything that's the basis of such an important character in in, in, in our history, um, such as Moses. So I, I was always ground-based in reality, always. That's the key for me in almost anything I do. And then the first part of the question was, you, I was offered it, actually, by Mr. Peter Chernin, who spent a couple of years actually de- evolving something, I think it was called Exodus at, the, at that particular point, and... Um, he said, take a read, it may not be for you, but, you know, but let's see what you think. But from that, I discovered on reading it, I knew absolutely nothing about Moses whatsoever, <laughs> other than the baby in the rushes and the, the, uh, the, the tablets at the end. And so I was so enamored with him, it began a conversation, away we went, and here we, here we are talking. Well, the the thing about Exodus that impressed me the most was not just the scale of it on a biblical biblical tale, but the way it was really more about two friends, two like brothers in a sense, who literally have a major falling out and coming apart. That to me was really the crux of the story. Was that really what you were going for as well? Yes, I mean, because once it begins that way, you get brothers and all half brothers or. Or you know they're not they're kind of more if you keep if you like so respectful of each other that it's a kind of there's an affection definitely there and that except one will be king and one will not be king and the one who will not be king is perfectly happy with that in fact does not want anything of that kind of accolade and also as a person who we establish as being somebody who has no uh, any other sense of a spiritual side to him. Other than that, he's a complete he's a complete atheist. Yeah. And whereas to be a pharaoh, you would have to be certainly take on board. You have a thousand gods. When you become pharaoh, you're going to become one of them. So if you deny that, and of course we believed and we know, and I think Moses felt at the time, being a man of, ahead of his time, <laughs> that of course the thousand gods made no sense whatsoever, and it was fundamental pro- propaganda. So well, you start off in a funny kind of way with a very modern context but always staying as closely as I could to the original uh, you know story from the Old Testament well looking at your career you've got gladiator which is fantastic kingdom of heaven now Exodus would you say you are particularly drawn to these big period epics I mean no it's whatever you know fancies whatever whatever takes my fancy um, I, it's a very English expression. <laughs> Australian but, uh, as well. <laughs> the big plan with me is that there is no plan. I kind of bounce from pillar to post where I'm in constant state of, of developing material that I want to do. So, for instance, right now, I know I'm right in the middle of what in, in Budapest of what I'm doing next. I'm halfway through, and I know pretty well what I'm going to do next year. And that's, I always work ahead of the game, and that usually is development. Because you cannot ever rely on having a script sent to you that you're going to want to do. Right. So I learned that very early on. And by if you believe that, you're suddenly going to have horrible two-year gaps. Yeah. 
Well, when, because you are, you do have so much going on. I mean, I feel like you're you're at the busiest stage of your career ever between the the television that you've been producing, the films you've been producing, and the movies that you are directing as well. And just because you do sort of have a, a full slate for the next couple of years, I just uh, would love to know, you know, what is it that that inspires Ridley Scott? What what is it that when you when you read something, you're developing something, you just go, yes, this is what I'm going to spend the next eighteen months to two years of my life doing well you know i uh, was briefly i'll keep it as brief as i can um uh, academically at school i was zero which um you know is not unusual for a lot of people um and i didn't know where i was, I was going but the one thing i could do very well was draw inordinately well and because of that i got into some very good art schools and by getting into art school i found my vocation in life and I'd have been happy to be an art master, uh, providing I could paint at weekends. And um, <laughs> But it went further than that because I got into the Royal College of Art, and so the whole thing starts to evolve. And by then, I'm in London. I'm taking great, paying great attention in veteran member of the of National Film Theatre, so I'm seeing a lot of foreign films. So I got into a foreign films fairly early on and became passionate about the idea of making films. No film schools at that point. So I followed my nose into BBC, and from that moment on, I gradually involved into being a director of BBC. And suddenly I thought, my God, I'm going to actually try to make a film one day. <laughs> Ironically, I never made my first movie till I was 39, till I was 40. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. And yeah. would you say that your approach to Exodus has changed from your approach to Gladiator all those years ago? Well, Gladiator was an entirely made-up, uh, good concoction of, of uh, simply in in a, in a phrase a revenge film. Yeah, um, it was introducing a guy who would be a big star to the mm-hmm. to the screen. Um, Russell Crowe. Yeah, and we made up back that Maximus was the Spanish general because there would have been Spanish general. There'd been English generals, kind of Anglo-Saxon generals would have to be half Roman actually. But um, the Marx Aurelius was real. Commodus was real. Son of Moses of um, I said Moses of, <laughs> of, 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 of uh, the and the emperor who never set foot in Rome for seventeen years. He spent the last seventeen years of his life in Germany. Mm. Marx Aurelius never actually managing to defeat the Gauls until wow. they finally came down to Rome and sacked Rome. So we, we took a lot of the real characters and evolved the story around them. Mm. Well, well, in doing this profile special on you, Sir Ridley Scott, we were really amazed sort of going back and realizing the impact, the cultural impact yeah. of the movie Thelma and Louise, which yes. is almost amazingly 25 years old. And, you know, looking back on the impact of Thelma and Louise, you know, you got nominated for a director, Callie Corey won screenplay, and both Gina and Susan both got nominated for Best Actress. How prod- proud are you still of the impact of Thelma and Louise all these years later? Well, I was surprised at the impact. Um, I was suddenly surprised to see them on Time magazine cover. Um, <laughs> and Callie's script had come to me uh, for me as a producer. And I went around, because I had the production company then, and I went went I was, went was around five directors. I won't say who they were. But saying, <laughs> you know, you, 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 you. And everyone had a problem with it or didn't think there was anything there. And, a couple of them said, well, I've got a problem with the women. I said, well, actually, you're meant to, dude. It's still <laughs> about you. And um, so eventually I met an actress who was, I won't say who she was, but she's revered then, revered today, who said to me, why don't you come to your senses new director? That stopped me in my tracks. So I did. And um, out of that, I always figured, I looked on Thelma Louise as, I, I tend to think of things in epic terms. And... Um, I thought this was an epic journey with two women which would evolve into what, in essence, was the last journey. It would, of course, be the last journey. And it's just that, you know, I apply my eye to it, to the landscape, to the scale, and suddenly it's a big movie with two great actresses yeah. and a big, very, very, very on-the-to-the-point on the, screenplay. Mm. You can almost shot a documentary with a screenplay, but I saw a lot of humor in it, so I went for the humorous side because I figured if I didn't, it would just cut off so many men, right? Yeah. 
I wanted men to see it as well as women to appreciate it. I love that movie. It's one of my favorites. So before we let you go, just a quick question. Blade Runner, I remember you saying a long time ago that it was your most personal film. Do you still feel the same way? You know, I think I said at the time, but I inject everything in my whole persona into every film I do. So even Exodus is absolutely a lot of me in there. Like, I, I didn't know how to deal with the voice of God. So we came up with the notion. I thought, of, first of all, the Dalai Lama, actually, oddly enough. Wow. <laughs> and um, and then I thought that what happens if the child, if the malak is, is, means messenger, it, or, or in some language it might suggest angel, but I prefer messenger. And the messenger side of, of that you know, took shape into a representative of God. But also, if you look very carefully at it, you and remember that when you see the wide shots of Moses talking to Malak, there is no Malak. Right. When you cut in close, there is Malak. Exactly. So it yeah. means that, that also means you can read that into that, that Malak, in fact, indeed, could be Moses' conscience. Mm. Ooh. Interesting. Wow, that, yeah. that boy, that opens the movie up to a whole new perspective. Well, Sir Ridley Scott, we cannot thank you enough for calling in to talk with us here on Profiles. We are very, very grateful for your time and generosity. Keep, uh, keep doing what you're doing yes. because we love it and thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks you. Bye. 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 Yes. 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 I love how we hold it together when we're on the line with people. And as soon as they hang up, we're like, oh, yes, my, oh God. my God. What just happened? Okay. Wait. Ridley Scott. Sir. Sir Ridley Scott. Thank you very much. Just called into our show profile no to talk deal. with Malone and Nance. Yeah, no Come deal. on. Major high five is going on here. Major high five is. One more time. One more I time. Can't. One more time. One more. You can do it, Miss oh, Malone. One more. Too much. Profiles Ridley Scott. But why don't you tell us a bit about Exodus? Exodus, Gods and Kings. I think this is his best epic since Gladiator. Uh, I Kingdom of Heaven I thought was okay, and Robin Hood I wasn't really crazy about, but I felt like this was his most solid epic, and, and has a really interesting take on, of course, the Exodus from Egypt, and mm-hmm. Moses, and uh, and the Pharaoh and everything, and I just, I was really, really intrigued, and I think it's a very solid film, yeah. and I definitely would recommend people see it on the big screen, and it's in 3D, which is also interesting because he's never done a 3d movie before you see joel edgerton and makeup coming straight at you exactly yes but now this brings us to our number one movie on our fast five which is i've seen things you people wouldn't believe blade Uh, runner blade runner blade runner your favorite film ever ever Ever. Ever. Not just my number one Ridley Scott movie. Or your number one Harrison Ford movie. It was. It is my number one movie, period. Ever. Maybe next to Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I like yes. them both sort of equally. But Blade Runner is a film that when it came out on June 25th, 1982, the same month, the same month as Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. The Thing. The Thing. Blade, uh, Blade Runner, duh. Uh, <laughs> E.T. The Extraterrestrial and Poltergeist. They're here. What? What a month. And I was one years old. You were one. Thank yeah. you. I was 13. <laughs> Thanks so much for that. Sorry. <laughs> oh, little Alicia, one-year-old Alicia It's rare that Alicia I can feel Malone. young these days with all these people born in the 90s. It's been a while since I felt young. But you're only as old as you feel, so that puts me down for about 22. Yeah. But this is a movie that was nominated for two Academy Awards, including... Best, yes it is, who could that be? <laughs> Someone important. Uh, no. Uh, best visual effects and best art and set direction. Movie cost $28 million to make back in 1981 and 82, mm. and that was a lot of money. It grossed in its original domestic run $14 million, so it was a flop. And it still, it amazes me every time I see it, and I've watched it so many times now, just the look of it is so beautiful. The cinematography, the light, the shadow, the fog. And once again, Ridley Scott creates this very believable world. It's kind of like a Tokyo, L.A. mix. It's a raining mix. all the time. There's a lot of mixing going on here. You have a mix between Eastern and Western cultures, mm-hmm. the past, film noir, and the future, sci-fi. Yeah. And this was a movie that, that devised the term, the style, called cyberpunk, which literally means high-tech 
low life because mm-hmm. the advances of technology are offset by the deterioration of the infrastructure, the total breakdown of order, and just the chaos. I mean, look how crowded those and grimy and just dirty the streets of L.A. are. Yeah. And this is a movie that when it came out in 1982, it was a very different film. It had the voiceover. It had a tacked-on ending. And I didn't like it when I first saw it. I Mm -mm. thought it was boring. But when I saw the director's cut in 1982... And then the final cut, 2007. In 2007, which is the best of them all. Definitely. I mean, it's great that you have five different cuts of this movie. You have it's the war print cut, yeah. the international cut, the original cut, the director's cut, and the final cut. It's I bet crazy. you've seen them all. Uh, yes, yeah. I have seen them all. But the final cut's the best. It is. And it's a movie that even by the standards, when I saw it in 2007 for the final cut, I couldn't believe how much it still felt like it was ahead of its time. Mm. And now here we are in December of 2014. The movie takes place in November of 2019. That's less than five years away. Are you a replicant? Uh, Yes, I've seen things. <laughs> no! But this movie was based on the book by Philip K. Dick, yep. The Android's Dream of Electric Sheep. And it's Sheep. so dense with so much that you can talk about, all about the idea of, of what makes a human, human. That's the thing. That's the main thing about Blade Runners. What does it mean to be human? I mean, these replicants only have a four-year lifespan. But since they ultimately felt something, especially Roy Batty, played by Rucker Hauer, doesn't that make him human in the literal sense? Mm. Also... The other question people still ask is... Harrison Ford a replicant? And when you see the original cut, you really don't know. Because what where would that talk even come from? But when the director's cut came out in 1980, 1992, with the added 30-second dream sequence of, of, the uh, of the unicorn... So how would, how would Gaff, played by Eddie James Olmos, have known that... Deckard was a replicant who dreamed of a unicorn mm. if that wasn't an implant in his file. There you go. I there feel like you, you could do a whole profile on Just Blade on Blade Runner. Runner. I really can. We might can. do it sometime. We might do it sometime. Well, Noodle McDoodle must have had a terrible time at school. <laughs> he says, when I... Or she? I don't know. He says, when I first saw Blade Runner, I was expecting a well-acted sci-fi action film, but I got a philosophical masterpiece. From the first couple of shots of the city and all-seeing eye, I knew this was something different. There was no giant action climax with explosions and $50 million special effects. The climax was a speech, but not just any speech. When Rutger Hauer spoke the infamous I've seen things, my heart dropped. Never had I seen such a philosophical climax of truth and power in my life this whole film is a gem of cinema the gorgeous lighting perfect acting and beautiful dialogue make this one of my favorite films of all time it's too bad she won't live but then, then again, again who, who does? does noodle noodle go noodle and go this was noodle. a film that really inspired a lot of other movies obviously minority report mm-hmm. and the matrix yes children of men dark strange city. days dark city uh and liam Logrand, mm-hmm. who was a, an awesome profile because he liked me is a big Beatles fan, and he's Aussie, 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 oi, 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 says, the first time I saw this science fiction masterpiece, I was blown away by the heavy use of noir themes and traits throughout the film. There's a female femme fatale in the character of Rachel. Their cinematography provides a dark and shadowy atmosphere to the experience of the questionable morals and values of the protagonist, which are displayed in the character of Rick Deckard. Scott was ahead of his time, still is, providing some of the best visuals on par with 2001 and Star Wars, the film is a slow burn, but it's the stuff that made that great dreams are made of. Hashtag, hashtag film geek. geek hashtag profiler for life. life. Yes, <laughs> Liam. We saved the best for last. This is why we love Liam. And now that brings us to the end of our Ridley Scott episode. Let's recap our Fast Five. Coming number in number five, Black Hawk Down. Number, number four, four, Gladiator. Number, number three, three, Thelma and Louise. Number, number two, two, Alien. Number, number one, Blade Runner. Woohoo! That Woo-hoo. is done. But who do we have next week? I drink your milkshake. I drink Uh, it up. And it's not Daniel Day-Lewis, but it's instead Paul Paul Thomas Anderson, Anderson, who has his new movie in her and Vice coming out. And we already have a guest. A big guest. big guest lined up for our next Profiles. So please make sure you go to iTunes, subscribe to Profiles, rate and review us so we can keep coming back week mm-hmm. after week with great episodes of Profiles. Go to youtube.com slash popcorn talk network and, and make we... Sh- and make sure you go to our Facebook page, oh, yes. Profiles with Malona Mance on the Schmozino Network. Give it a like and we will see you next, next week. time. Bye.
from producers Maria Menounos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, Christian Harloff, and the entire Popcorn Talk Network. We would like to thank you for tuning in. For questions or comments, be sure to visit popcorntalk.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of the Popcorn Talk Network. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of its owners or principals.